Hard to sit down, ain't it? Well, the text is a little long to just read. It's, it's only a few chapters long out of Amos, but we're going to summarize, but Amos is really the, the text that we're looking at. Now, the first couple of chapters, when you start looking at the book of Amos, Amos was a minor prophet. Amos would probably be kind of, when you hear Paul talking about being the least of the, of the apostles and whatever, that's kind of Amos's position. Amos was not, was not trained. He wasn't, he wasn't educated. He wasn't a normal prophet. That wasn't his whole job. He basically was just someone doing, doing his, his own thing in Judah. And God sends a word down to Amos and says, I want you to take this word into Israel. Now, Israel, this is after the, the breakup or the division of the northern and the southern kingdoms. And so that would put Amos in, in the, the, the southern kingdom of Judah, and he's being appointed to go and preach repentance to the nation of Israel, who is under Jeroboam II. Now, the context in Jeroboam II, they were enjoying some prosperity. And so I'm sure that, that we can maybe empathize or understand what it is like for a prophet to go into a land that is experiencing no real turmoil yet. I mean, it's one thing if, you, if everything's going bad and a prophet comes in and says, the Lord says, this is why you are suffering. And we go, oh no, we need to do something different. Instead, Jeroboam, in his own sinfulness and his leadership within the northern kingdom now, is basically being, being told by the prophet, and really the, the prophet Amos is not even let within 10 yards of Jeroboam. In fact, one of the prophets who is in the, the, the nation of Israel in the northern kingdom basically comes to Amos and says, you need to leave, you need to, to go back to Judah, and you need to never come back again. And so the book of Amos that we have is Amos writing down what the word of the Lord has, has come to him in order to testify against and so that Jeroboam and all the others would be able to, to hear and to see and have it in written form what the, what the word of the Lord was to them in order to repent. Now the first couple of chapters that I want to draw out really really draws out. There are seven kingdoms, including Israel and Judah, surrounding the area. And all seven of these countries are being named in Amos, because of course what happens to one country is somewhat going to be affecting the others. One's not really really out of that, if you will. Uh, just to kind of go through, we have Damascus. Uh, they've threshed Gilead with, uh, with threshing uh, sledges of iron. Uh, God will send fire upon the house of Hazel and will devour the strongholds of Beth, Beth Hadad. Uh, we have the transgressions of Gaza. We hear the Gaza Strip of Lot lately. Uh, carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So he'll send fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. Uh, the transgressions of Tyre, 
uh, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So God will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre and will devour her strongholds uh, upon the, the nation of Edom. Uh, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So he'll send fire upon Taman and shall devour the strongholds of uh, Basra. See, this is the problem with having, what do we call these bifocals, is if you get far enough away... You can't see with the top side, and you can't see with the bottom side. So we'll try this a little more. Then we talk about the transgressions of the Ammonites, because they've ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, and that they might enlarge their border. So God will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it will devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle with the tempest in the day of the whirlwind. So the king shall go into exile, he and his princes together." Transgressions of Moab, uh, he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom, so, he will, so God will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth. And Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of trumpets, and he will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him. And then Judah, uh, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So he will send fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. And we get the transgressions of Israel. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that, the, so that God's holy name is profane. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it is I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and the roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and command the prophets, saying, You shall, pro- shall not prophesy. This is, of course, where, where um, uh, Amos has, is referring to now, uh, these being sent out. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves pressed down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who beholds the bow shall not stand, for he, he, is, he who is swift of foot, shit, of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in the day, decries the Lord. These are the seven nations. Now, can you tell me out of the New Testament, does that sound anything like, like to have maybe a, a little carryover? Letter to the seven churches out of Revelation. We have a lot of this coming in. And, of course, when the book of Revelation, it, when, when the revelation is given to John, he is speaking against the, the, current, 
the current nations, the current churches. It's no longer the nations themselves. It's the churches that are, that are filled with, with God's people who have lost their way one way or the other. They've forgotten who they were. They've become lukewarm. Fill in the, the other ones for it. Well, God was really laying upon me, and of course, out of the, I believe, the fifth chapter, we hear the one that's, that, said, that, that we hear a lot out of the civil rights movement talking about, and, and justice shall flow like, like mighty rivers. And looking in the context of Amos, he talks about it as the Lord's justice. It is this, this call back to the nation of Israel who were supposed to be God's chosen people, and they, of course, still act as though they're God's chosen people, yet they do not keep God's, God's heart. They do not keep his promises. They do not keep his word. They do not obey him. Basically, what, what could be said out of the nation of Israel is that they do the very bare minimum of what it is to be Israel. And of course, Judah, we, we hear as well as the others, they're not sinless either. It, it could have been just as easily for Amos to be going to, to Judah and talking. And we have major prophets and other minor prophets. In fact, Hosea is another one that, that gets called to, to go preach to Israel. God is relentless in his pursuit of Israel coming back in order to worship him and to be restored but this is, the, this is the coming judgment. This is the judgment that will flow upon all of Israel because they will be cast down. They will be put in their place. They will be humbled. What really came out to me is the idea that we get caught up in the physical. We get caught up in the building the church is in. We get caught up in the land that the state is in or that the nation is in. We get caught up in everything else that is physical that passes away. What we don't seem to get caught up in is what is important to God. What is important to God is not the physical building. What is important to God is not the nation of people all around just so that they can so that God can say, "Hey, there's my people." God has a justice about him that calls for righteousness, his righteousness, not a self-righteousness. We, we tend to, in the last several years, and, and of course when I say several, it keeps coming back around. And I think we, we need to realize that, that, that things keep coming back around and keep irritating us because they haven't really been solved, right? Right? We keep hearing things from the civil rights movement that keeps coming around, and, and we, we like to say that, that, the, that the United States is a Christian nation. The United States is not a Christian nation. It may have a lot of Christians to it, but let's look at even from the beginning, none of the Christians agreed on certain tenets. The idea of slavery, the abolitionists, were coming about at the, at, at the same time as when we celebrated the Declaration of Independence being signed. There was not agreement in what God's people were to be doing for the last 200 and almost 50 years. We find ourselves continually repeating the past, and we, and we talk of it in, in history, and I'll, I'll full disclosure, I'm a history 
kind of scholar, if you will. That was, that was my, my first choosing out of college and studying into it. And then I actually started reading the books I was supposed to be reading. And then you get a lot more if you actually read what you're supposed to be looking at. Kind of happens with the Bible, too. Instead, what we get is a people who want to believe what someone else has said about the Bible and not understanding it for ourselves. And so as a result, we are very, not only are we biblically illiterate, we're also biblically stupid. Because if we do not know what the source material is, and we take it on faith that someone else is telling us the right things, we're not just ignorant, but we're stupid. Because what is coming out of someone's mouth can very well be in a sense of what they want to pull out. We keep talking about in the, in the, the, the current situation that the media has a, has a lot of this kind of division, if you will. And if we look at it objectively, there's not a media in the last 200 and almost 50 years that hasn't lied to us in one way, shape, or form, either of their own choosing or because the government was telling them what, the, what they could and could not say. So it's for freedom of the press, right? The only people that would understand are those who were devout to look and to study and to devote themselves into what was being done to basically write down objectively the history of what was occurring. What is probably the most significant discovery that anyone will ever find in reading through the Scripture is that a very unbiased source especially around the the time of Christ, corroborates the entire story with with no mention within the Scripture. Josephus was a Jewish historian with a a few, not really changes, but basically just a very basic, uh, a a baseline, in other words, no no interpretation, no no other significance, writing simply the, the history we get the exact history of Jesus, of all, of all of his miracles, everything that was done in a very factual state. Jesus did this, this was done, this was done, this was done, this was done. He was crucified, yada, yada, yada. That was Josephus. So the one book you can, you can be assured is telling you the truth is this one. So why don't we read it? Why don't we study it? Why don't we understand, especially if it is a living word to God's people, why do God's people not care enough to know exactly what God wants of them? How many of us, when we were teenagers, went, I just want to know what God wants for my life. I just don't know what I'm going to do with my life. We get this over and over, whether you're, whether you're 16 or 60 or, you know, anywhere in between or, or more. I don't know what to do with my life. And the fact is that God's Word will point us towards that. Now, God's Word is not going to say go and be an electrician. Sometimes God is going to send someone over and over when he, when, he, when he shows up somewhere, and they're going to say, you know, you should go to auto shop. You should become an electrician. Because God has ways of doing that, so, so reading in the Word is not necessarily going to come out with the, with the express permit. I'm citing Bill. Bill's not laughing or smiling at all. I'm just, he's laughing on the inside. Okay. 
But the fact is that as we find out of Amos and others, there is a justice and a righteousness that God's people are expected to have. And it doesn't matter what building you're stepping into. We've talked over and over, it doesn't matter what the past of this congregation was, because with the, with the exception of a very small few, no one remembers the past of this, of this congregation. We're all pretty new. Amen? And even the ones that do remember it probably don't want to remember it, so they're just as happy to say, let's just forget that whole thing. But we still adhere to this idea that we are the center of the universe, rather than God. We still center ourselves on, well, how can I be a better person? How can I know the will of God? How can I, any, anyone ever hear those type, sorts of things? God's word continually tells us that there is a holiness, be, be holy as I am holy. But the whole of scripture is not about me and you individually, It is giving instruction to you and me individually in order so that we can live and and worship and obey corporately as part of a whole. That's why Paul talks about the, the body of Christ being many parts. We talk about having many spiritual gifts for the, for the, for the edification of the body. We, we, God's word continually points to this whole nation idea that we individually are to obey and be righteous in order so that the body itself can then be righteous as well. And what is the purpose for that? Because the world is full of garbage that Satan will continually throw in. The biggest spiritual battle I think we talked about a couple weeks ago, the biggest spiritual battle we face is the one that's inside of us that keeps us centered on ourselves and what we want to do and what we should be doing and what I, 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 I. If we, if we look through the scriptures, God is tr- continually trying to keep us engaged in being disciples, in being followers, and doing his will. Not, a, not the bare minimum. The bare minimum is we take care of ourselves and make ourselves look good so that God can be happy, so that we can go to heaven and everything's fine. The problem is that we live in a society that we take too much of a hands-off approach with. In the, in the last several years, there's been an there, uprising, if you will, in, in minority. And when I say minorities, I mean we've, we've had Asians being attacked, we've had Native Americans being attacked, we've had blacks being attacked. 
And as the church, a lot of times, we, we center on who is representing them and pick this out and say, well, they don't have pure motives, or they want this, or they want that, and whatever else. The question that we need to answer is, why aren't we, as the church, as God's representatives, doing something about it then? See, we become so involved in criticizing every little part that we ignore the fact that of what, what, what God lays on Amos' heart is justice flowing down like mighty rivers. We are to be the ones that are, that are reaching out in heartbreak over our Christian brothers and sisters of another race being mistreated. And, when I'm, and I, I'm going to even dare to say, even further than that, you don't get Christian brothers and, and sisters out of people that are mistreated who are being mistreated by the Christian church. I have a real heart for the Native American population because the Native American population has been oppressed more by the Christian church than they even have by the government. And that's saying something. Why aren't we as the Christian church responding in a way that heals rather than than simply putting it off because they're burning churches in in Canada because of the the anger and the the tumult over so much happening to their children? In the African-American places... Why are we as the church not looking for ways to be able to bridge the gaps that are being created? Why are we not hearing the messages and only criticizing whoever else is trying to do something with it? Why are our hearts not breaking if we were in the same positions that they were? Why? Because God's word doesn't tell us to to opt ourselves out of it. We... We get ourselves involved in a spiritual battle when we put ourselves in a place where we allow that that spirit that says, me, 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 and we start getting the the fur on our back like a a cat. That's the only thing that ever comes comes up. We get defensive. Had a conversation with my uncle. My uncle is probably one of the least racist people that I know for being a white man, I guess. His father was very much against, and his grandfather was actually in the, in the leadership for the, for the KKK at one point. So in generations coming down, they have fought specifically to go against it, but because of the language that comes up, he gets lumped into it to a bunch of others. The question is, why are we, as the Christian church, and I'll even say Caucasian, Why are we who are in a position of influence not influencing justice that God wants to pour out in this world to save souls? Why are we not taking care of the widows and the orphans and the strangers in our midst? Why are we not putting ourselves spiritually in a position where we will not tolerate the sin of the nation just so that we individually can, can continue to prosper. 
when we look throughout Scripture, we are meant to be spiritual beings in concert with God's heart. There, there was a song a few years back. Um, Brandon Heath wrote it, and, and it was more popular for that time. And it said, it was, it was give me your eyes. And his, his whole premise was basically seeing people in an airport as he's flying. He sees, and he, and he suddenly sees the eye of the, of the man that, that doesn't want to go home and tell his wife he's lost his job. He sees the eyes of the, of the ones that are, that, that are unable to, to live. There was a song a few years back even further by a, by a group called Lost and Found, uh, and it was simply called Baby. I love that song. I, I like to sing it. And it was the idea of four different people who basically were, were unapproachable in our, in our current society. It was the girl that was, that, that was dressed head to foot in black and the Doc Martens and the biker tights and the, and the Rottweiler and everything else and being, being very, very gruff about it. But the chorus says, nobody calls her baby, nobody says I love you so, nobody calls her baby, so I guess she'll never know. Talks about a man that's, that, that, that has wingtip shoes he makes his plane, he keeps his pace, he hides his pain behind a poker face. But nobody calls him baby, nobody says I love you so, nobody calls him baby, I guess he'll never know. And on and on, we need to understand and remember who we were before Christ set us free. And desire that for everyone else that does not know that yet. When I first started in ministry in Nebraska, I was doing a, uh, a mental health internship for, for a chaplaincy. I met a young woman uh, who was in a, a mental health facility at the time. She kind of a, in, it, it was inpatient, but only temporary. She wasn't there for very long. And as we're going through, I'm young and I have a loud mouth and I probably still have a loud mouth. I'm just not as young anymore. But we got to talking about things and, and somehow, you know, sexual orientation came up and in a particular church. And, and of course, out of the, the, the denomination I came out of, there was a, a heated discussion or, or trial, if you will, of one particular clergy member who, wanted to ha- who, who was wanting to, uh, to celebrate a wedding of, of two, uh, two lesbian uh, women. And it was, and the, the whole church was up in arms and everything else. And I'm, and I'm saying, yeah, I'm just not, you know, popular on that and whatever else. And, and after that, she introduced the idea that she was one of those two. Now, here's what I want you to, to hear. And I won't name names because that breaks confidentiality for it. And not that they would know necessarily. But she basically says that the, that the whole background, what we were told out of the media, was not the actual story. The actual story was, yes, that she was a lesbian, and her partner at one point was a lesbian, but had now become transgendered and was not a ma- now a male. She had expressed concern that she still believed that she was attracted to women and that her partner, albeit that she loved her partner, did not want to be married to her partner who was now a physical male. That made no difference to the minister because all of this, as she related 
we were just a cause for them to come out with. I was incensed. I was incensed, first of all, that someone that was basically coming, and, I, and I've, I've done many weddings. I wouldn't say I was the most, most in-depth spiritual person for, for going through the wedding because they came and they'd been related. But, but to have someone come up with that kind, of, that kind of rationale at the time and to be basically put off because the minister had better things to do than worry about their spiritual being or their physical or their relationship or anything else because this was something that was going to promote his own, his own agenda his, his own popularity or his own, um, what am I looking for? His, his career. It was going to further his career. What she said next, really, what, well, what came next was I, I told her, She's like, so would you say anything different? I'm like, well, I might have chosen some different words, but I meant what I said. And what I said at the time was, I do not believe that this lifestyle is God's design for you. Because God loves you, and God would not freely put you into a place where you were in so much misery and so much pain that I can see you in right now. I cannot imagine a God who is a loving God, who loves me and loves everyone else, doesn't love you and doesn't want something better for your life. And I said, and I am not about to tell you, I have done some of the dumbest things in the world. I have sinned like no one else. And I am not about to tell you that God loves me and he doesn't love you. And she said, no one ever told me God loves me. No one ever told me God loves me. She had grown up in a Mormon church. She had grown up in a Mormon family. She had now been in a, in a United Methodist congregation for several years. She was now being married by a, by a pastor who never told her God loves her. And neither had anyone else, apparently. I can be angry from a, from a, a pastoral perspective at ministers not hitting the very basis but people just like you and I have that responsibility too. You see, the, the point out of Amos is Amos was not called to be a prophet professionally. Amos was not called to go to many nations. Here's God's word for you now. I want you to tell it to this one. I want you to tell it to that one. He wasn't Jonah. Jonah was a professional prophet. Jonah went several other places besides Nineveh. Many of them apparently he agreed with. We just know about one that he didn't. And he still had to do it anyway. But we as God's people, the justice and the righteousness needs to flow from us, not into us only. My heart in being a Christian for us is, is not, a, not about a, a name that says, well, I, you know, I, I was baptized and I was confirmed in a church and whatever, I'm a Christian. 
It's, it's, it's not like writing this, and, I, and I'll, I'll throw back, in, in the nation of Israel right now, you have people that are, that are called Jews. Whether they go to temple or not, they're Jews because of their nation. They're a part of Israel. They live there. They're Jewish. That was never the intention for God's people. Neither was it in the intention for God's, excuse me, for God's people after the, the, the ascension of Christ and the, the day of Pentecost for us to somehow say, well, we come to a church and we sit here every Sunday, so that makes us a Christian. No, no, no. It makes us a church, churchgoer. It makes us a pew sitter. It does not make us a follower of Christ. If we confess the heart that has been changed, and I, and I want to br- bring back in, of course, out of, out of my own, and I, I have three minutes, so we're going to throw this really quick. John Wesley's biggest part, and he was the, the founder of Methodism, which is where the, the, the Wesleyans and the Nazarenes and the Assembly of God and all the others, not all the others, but, but those have, have come out of. And many of them probably fail miserably as a founder, but we'll, we'll say that his idea was that we are to be of social minded. There is no holiness but social holiness. And some would interpret that as we need to go do good works all the time and, and we leave somehow this idea of being holy out of it, that, that, that doing good things is, is the holiness, and that's not it. The idea, though, is that our holiness is not meant to be cloistered away like the, like the Catholics do, who basically go into a monastery and we sit and we pray four times a day and we don't talk to each other and we, and we pray on and on and on and on and on in silence and, and, and maybe in community, but we don't have any interaction with the outside world. So we just pray for God to do things because we're going to stay here and be quiet and we're going to keep to ourselves. That's not it. The only holiness that there is, and I do believe, is social holiness. If we are to have hearts that are burning with the Holy Spirit of God within us, we need to be people of God who will go out and share the Holy Spirit that burns inside of us with others who have need for God's presence in their lives, to change them, to refine them, to sanctify them, to heal them, to renew them, to give them hope. So they will, in fact, know not only just the basic part that God loves them, but God has a plan for their lives. I want us to go forth with the idea That God has a plan for our lives, and it is not for us to sit in a pew and come back next week and do the same thing. My, my My whole call to ministry was in sitting in a congregation and listening to sermons where the pastor basically said, be good, come back next week. That was the the basic line for it. That is not the plan that God has for our lives. His scripture, his word does not say that's the plan for our lives. We are made to live out holiness and righteousness, as as he tells to Amos, so that justice may flow down like a mighty river. Imagine if the church was filled with people who flowed and overflowed with God's holiness and God's righteousness so that no one is left out, so that no one is mistreated 
because there are plenty who will object to it. Let us be that kind of church individually and together. Would you pray with me? Father God, again, we thank you and we praise you. Lord, we come before you and we humble ourselves. We confess that we have failed at times. We confess that we have not understood or have not studied your word not only for our lives, but what our lives could be for others in your name. Lord, we pray that you would again keep us focused on what is eternal, sacrificing what is only temporary, so that what is eternal in the heavens will be made manifest in our lives and manifest in the lives of those that come in contact with us. Be with us, instruct us, guide us, lead us, sanctify us in your Holy Spirit, that we may be more than just people that come together on a given Sunday or a given day of the week, but people that are righteously filled with your Holy Spirit and doing your work, doing your majesty, giving you glory every single day so that the nation may overflow with your goodness and your righteousness and your holiness. We praise you and we thank you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.